Hello and welcome. My name's Andrew Horsfield and this is another episode of The Messy Middle, a podcast designed for leaders looking for insights, ideas or inspiration about what it takes to deliver results in a demanding context. You can subscribe or stay up to date at andrewhorsfield.com forward slash podcast. If you're someone who's ever complained about attending too many meetings or meetings that have no point or purpose, you're going to love my next guest, Donna McGeorge. Donna shares insights from her book, The 25-Minute Meeting, about how you can sharpen your focus, tighten the timeframes of your meeting so you get more done in less time. Donna's a facilitator, speaker and trainer who helps organisations make work work. She's passionate about enhancing the large amounts of time we spend at work and is engaged by clients throughout Australia and Asia to help their leaders manage people well and produce great performance and results. In this episode, Donna proves that workplaces can be complex but don't have to be hard when we focus on getting the simple things consistently right. It's time to listen and learn how to master your meeting mojo with Donna McGeorge. Donna, it's so great to be able to speak uh, with you this morning. You cut your teeth in the corporate sector and at companies like Ford and Qantas and Telstra before moving into the world of consulting. And I just wanted to start by asking you, what was the catalyst for that change for you? I'd been living in Sydney, working in the corporate world and had a fantastic career opportunity in the year 2000 to move to Melbourne, pack up my whole family, uh, to work for Ansett Airlines. And I'm assuming some of your audience is probably old enough to remember that Ansett Airlines went down the gurgler around 2001. Uh, so it was a classic case of I've moved down to Melbourne for this great job, the airline's gone bust, now what do I do? Um, and so I toyed with the idea of going back into another job and I thought, you know what, I'm just going to have a crack at this. I'm going to see if it's possible to build a business um, around what I did, which at the time was, you know, helping people in organisations around communication, teamwork, etc. And so I had a crack and here we are almost 20 years later and I'm still having a crack. So one by necessity rather than by design? Well, a little bit of both, I think, because I, I probably could have got another job. Like, no question, I, I probably could have, you know, d- done that. Um, so it was necessity in that I was at a turning point, but by design in that I, I made the choice to go out on my own rather than go get another job. And a lot of your expertise now in the work that you're doing has a really strong bias towards making work work. And I, I wondered from your experience and expertise, what are some of the common areas where smart people are getting stuck? Do you know, and, and, and really smart people are getting stuck. It's not just, you know, average people getting a bit stuck. Um, it's, it's, it's three things that I think uh, that, that, that people have trouble with. Um, one is we're in spending too much time in meetings and there's got to be a better way a- around that. Another is we're swamped with email and information generally and we're struggling to make sense of, of that. Um, we've got and the third one is we're just, we just can't um, deal with all the volume of work that we get given us. So managing our time and priorities in a way that um, we feel like we're giving the best to where we need to give the best. So they're probably the three key areas I think smart and or not even that smart people are struggling with. 
Yeah, and why do you think there is a struggle there? Because I think the data's in, the evidence is there, people feel it intuitively as well as uh, with the research and evidence that those three things are getting in the way. Why do we continue to do the thing that we know is not helping our productivity and health and happiness? Because I think we don't have time to stop and think about it. It's it's the classic case of, um, you know, when I used to be a corporate trainer and we'd run time management training, quote unquote, and it was the people who needed to be there were the ones who couldn't make the time to be there. And that was the the conundrum that that we still have. Um, so uh, a classic situation is with one of my clients. I've said, you know, we need to stop and think about how you're doing your meetings. And they're so busy having meetings, they can't stop and think about the quality of their meetings. Yes. Uh, and so we're just so caught up in the busyness of life that we rarely stop and just go, right, what's, you know, what should I be doing and when should I be doing it? Um, and also, I don't think time management techniques have kept up with modern demands. And so we, we're still operating under a paradigm of urgency and importance. And unfortunately, just about everything these days is urgent. And so you can't even put in a quadrant, which things should I be doing? Because everything is, is a quadrant one urgent and important kind of thing to do. And so we've got to start rethinking this. And, and that's kind of the space I like to play in is about how do we just do this differently and, and, to use my term, how do we have a crack at doing something differently? Whether it works or not, we'll decide. But you know what? We, you you got to do something, right? Yeah, exactly. So let me pick up on the first point you mentioned there about meetings because I think that's the one where if people are listening to, to this on the car, they probably would have driven off the road saying, yep, that's me, that's my <laughs> life. Um, I'm wondering as a starting question for you with meetings that, that I always get perplexed by is with so many great cloud-based systems for workflow and project management and information sharing that's available now and effective, we've moved past the clunky systems, they're, they're great to use, why do we actually need to meet at all? I think it's still a, a still a default setting that we have. I think there's two things. One is it's the default setting that the the idea is that we have to have a meeting to discuss something. And I think the second thing is we're human beings who crave connection. And so I, it, it's pendulum swinging, right? So we're now seeing a shift. We, the pendulum has come from, you know, the only way we would do things is we'd have meetings, whether they're on the phone or face-to-face or whatever. And now we're starting to see the pendulum swing potentially the other way where we've got all these great cloud-based tools like Slack and all of that where we can collaborate and get stuff done really well. Um, and I think there's a middle ground we have to find somewhere because human beings still will like to have a human connection. And I, I think um, the the tools that are the cloud collaboration tools are fantastic once we've established a great relationship with the people that we're working with. And I still think, call me old fashioned, I still think the best way to establish a great relationship is to have a face to face at least once to enable us to be able to use a lot of that cloud based um, stuff effectively. A colleague once described meetings to me as an event where the minutes are kept but the hours are lost. And <laughs> I'm wondering from your perspective, um, before we get into some of the solutions or tactics, is where are we going wrong when we do meet? I did a, a social media post and asked, you know, what is the thing we hate most about meetings? And most people will say lack of agenda, lack of preparation. And so um, my, I think where we go wrong is um, – that we forget about purpose of meetings. And so I think purpose trumps agenda. 
And so when we're going for a meeting, I think the mistake we're making is we're not clear on why we're having this meeting. We're not clear, clear on the right people that should be there. And we lack some kind of process for getting the work done in the meeting. Um, and so I think they're the things that we, we you know, the, the meeting um, invite will just say something like, you know, we're going to meet to talk about the Stuart project. And we just all go, okay, but what what is it about the Stuart project? Are we making a decision about something? Are we getting alignment? Are we sharing information? So the agenda might say, you know, discussion, 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 but what's the actual purpose? What's the outcome? At the end of the meeting, what, what are we hoping will happen? And I think that's probably the biggest mistake we're making. And, of course, we've got people who can share each other's calendars and book ca- meetings in at, at time and we're not in control of our time anymore. So that adds another dimension, doesn't it, to people coming to meetings that you mentioned may not be the right people there or the right use of their time. It really depends on who, who you taking control of your calendar. So I remember when I was doing a job uh, once, I was doing a contract, and um, I'd realised that the meetings were pretty much booked hourly. And I used to say, "Well, I think we should. I'm, I'm only going to book 45 minutes because I need 15 minutes at least to be able to get to my next meeting in an environment where there's back to backs, and also get my head in gear. So kind of clear the head from the last meeting and." you know, then get my head ready for the next one. And so my diary would show that I had 45-minute meetings. And then I started to get requests from people for those 15 minutes. I see you free for 15 minutes. Can I book a time? And I realised this sense of entitlement that if, if if your calendar shows that you're free, people feel entitled to fill that time and almost get a bit indignant when you say, actually, no, that's time I'm going to be using for something else. And so I say, you got to own your calendar. I don't think we can stop that fit, that, that, that behaviour, but certainly blocking time and you being totally in control of what goes into your calendar and when. And I want to ask you one question, but get your response to two different contexts for that question, if that makes sense. And that is, what steps can people take to make meetings more positive and productive? One, for the person who's organising, running and managing the meeting and then those people who are attending who are sitting there thinking, hang on, this isn't what Donna's talking about, and how do they change it as a participant rather than the organiser? I have a lot to say about that, just quietly, <laughs> <laughs> hence the book. Um, it's the it, it, There's two things. So first of all, any time you are organising a meeting, if you're the one that's chairing and convening it, you should be finishing this sentence. At the end of this meeting, it would be great if... And there'll be two or three things that you want to say. It'll be great if we get alignment. It'll be great if we decide. It'll be great if we're all informed, whatever that is. You, as the meeting organiser, absolutely have to be clear about that. Then the second question you ask is, so given that that's what my end game is, at the end of this meeting, it will be great if we've made a decision. You then ask yourself, who are the right people to help me achieve that outcome? And I'd love you to be thinking um, about who will give and get value in the context of this meeting. So there was a a guy a while back, a guy called Harrison Owen, who is the inventor of open space technology. Don't worry about that. It's it's basically a conference methodology. And it it came about because he'd organised a conference, 600-odd people, several days, lots of speakers, great workshops. And in the feedback at the end, he said, what did you like best about the conference? And nearly unanimously, people said, the tea breaks. And instead of getting upset by that, he was like, wow, that's interesting because what happens in a tea break? 
And he says what happens is people wander around with their cup of tea deciding who they'll join a conversation with and who they'll walk away from. And there's no need to be polite. You can walk up, have a bit of a listen, think, no, not for me, I'm going to wander off. Yes. And so he said meeting, so, so I don't think um, we're going to do meetings using open space technology, but I think when you're thinking about inviting people, you should be asking if they could use Harrison Owen's rule of two feet, which is if they're not giving or getting value to use their two feet and walk away. If they could do that, because in the corporate world you can't, there's too much values and hierarchy and, and weirdness that wouldn't allow that. But if you were thinking to yourself, if these people could get up and walk out, would they? And so you don't want anyone sitting in that meeting that's thinking, I'd love to get up and walk out. And so the question we ask about people is, what am I wanting them to do? What are the, how are they going to give or get value from this meeting? And so if I flip that back to now you're sitting in a meeting or you're, you're not the chair, you've, been, you've accepted the invitation, the first thing I'd say is if it's unclear what the purpose is, it's perfectly legitimate to do respectfully, go back to the person or the organiser and say, hey, just a quick one, at the end of this meeting, what will you hope will happen so that you're clear on the agenda and, and, and the outcome? And the second thing is you could even ask them, you know, hey, what role do you want me to play? What is it you're wanting me to do or get as, as, a part of be, as being a part of this meeting? And so that's, that's before you even get to the meeting. And so your question was also now that I'm in the meeting, um, it feels like it's gone off track a bit. Is there something I can do even though I'm not the chair of the meeting? And the answer is absolutely. It's a little bit, if you think of the metaphor of there's never not a pilot in a plane. And so if, if a plane's going along, there has to be someone sitting in the pilot seat. And so sometimes meetings feel like a plane about to crash because there's no one driving it. There's no direction. There's nothing happening. And so you can just step into the pilot seat. You don't have to announce it. In fact, I would suggest you don't. Don't say, hello, I'm about to fly this plane or facilitate this meeting. You would just simply ask a question like, do you mind if I just pause for a second? Um, I just want to ask something. Can I go around the table just quickly and say, at this point in time, in your, from your perspective, what do you think the most important thing is we should be talking about right now. And you can begin to facilitate and just lead the conversation a little more. Anyone can do that anytime. And I love your distinction around not to announce it. You know, there's a difference between taking the controls of the plane and hearing over the loudspeaker, does anyone know how to fly a plane when you're sitting in <laughs> the back of the plane? Absolutely. So how do you um, suggest people do that whilst not committing career suicide by speaking up or seeming to be the person who's argumentative or throwing a spatter in the works or is there a, a trick or tool that you'd recommend in how people do what you're suggesting? I think it comes down to um, a bit of mindset to some extent. I assume an attitude of curiosity most of the time. And so if I'm in a meeting and it's going off track, rather than go, oh my God, here we go, we're going off track again, the question I would ask is, I wonder how we could get this back on track. I wonder if I ask a question, would that get back on track? And then applying that curiosity with your question, is it okay if I just ask a question? I'm just wondering if, if we could just quickly check in, is this what we need to be talking about? Because the original agenda was this, and I'm just curious if that's, if, if that's the case, that's fine. I just want to remind us and if that's okay. Can I say very, very carefully, pick your audiences and if you're practicing, because it's about practice, you get good at this. So practice some 
checking techniques, some curiosity questioning techniques in some meetings where the risk is lower or or the stakes aren't as high first. And I think it's one of those things that that I'd uh, add as a comment too about that risk and reward that we often overplay the risk and underplay the reward where, you know, if someone's sitting there and has the courage that a lot of other people are thinking but not saying, you do start to elevate your reputation and your position within that meeting when it's done positively. I totally agree. I remember being in a meeting uh, with a colleague um, and and I witnessed her do this that she wasn't the chair of the meeting. She wasn't certainly wasn't the most senior person in the meeting. She um, probably from a power perspective would have been very low down the power ranks, quote unquote. And she literally just said, hey, this is the first time I've been to this meeting. Would, can, would anyone mind just a quick one minute whip around the table, tell me what you're currently working on, the reason you're around the table and what, what the current barrier you have around this project. And away they went. And then then the next one was she jumped up and said, right, so it looks like these seem to be themes. And she wrote down three themes that she'd heard. And then she said, are these the things we should be talking about? Yes. Okay. So how about we've got another 15 minutes for this meeting. How about we do five minutes on each? I'm happy to be timer. And at the end of the meeting, the, the really senior people were saying, that was the best meeting we've ever had. Can you please come back every to every one of our meetings? Yeah. And so what I learned from that is, a meeting has to be facilitated and too often we think that role or that word belongs to someone who's a specialist or who's someone we hire or there's some kind of training or presenting aspect to it, but it's not. It's just what's the right question to ask that's going to facilitate the right discussion and anyone can do that and it doesn't even matter if it whether it elevates you or not. It actually gets meetings to be the productive space they should be. And look, Google's got a lot for answer for in, in and most calendar apps with this one hour default. And I know mm. you're a, a strong advocate around the 25 minute meeting. So can you just tell us more about that philosophy and why that matters to you? I probably haven't had a meeting in a business context for about eight years that wasn't 25 minutes. And so let me just be a bit clear. So uh, 25 minutes for your average day-to-day business as usual. There's no way you can put a strategic plan together in 25 minutes. So just to be clear about that. And so I started to think about this a long time ago around why are meetings always an hour? Why, Why is the default? And then when I started to write the book, I started to research what is, is there a magic number? And it turns out there's a reason why I accidentally stumbled across 25 because there's a there's some science behind the amount of time we can concentrate, the amount of time we can focus on one thing, and it all comes from Francesco Cirillo's work on the Pomodoro method, which is a, a way to get a productivity tool. So you focus for 25 minutes, take a five-minute break. And so when I put that into a meetings context and had a look at the other research that sat behind it, it just it's just a very good number. Um, for time. And, and so that's that's the science behind it, right? And it also came as a result of working in environments where we're just in back-to-back meetings all day. And so I don't mean to be vulgar, but it was like, when do I get to go to the bathroom? Mm-hmm. And I felt like I was either always having to leave a meeting early or be late to the next. And that didn't sit well with me either. And so it came down to some very practical reasons too. 
And in terms of the 25 minutes, do you have a certain structure that you teach and, and talk about as to how people should spend that 25 minutes? And does that vary between whether it's an information meeting or a collaboration meeting or a decision-making meeting? Um, I do. And, and in fact, I've got a high-level structure that I use all the time for all meetings, even if they're one-on-one, if they're 25 minutes or whether they're two days. Um, and the model is called Scan, Focus, Act. Um, and the idea is that we spend a bit of time scanning what's going on, getting information from others that we need. Therefore, what are some of the themes that we need to focus on? So what are the things we should in this meeting that we really need to talk about? And then finally, act. What are the actions we're going to take as a result of um, this meeting? And so if it's a, to be very precise, if it's a 25-minute meeting, um, it's 12 minutes in scan, eight minutes in focus and five minutes in act. And some people find that a little bit challenging because a lot of us are driven to action and they kind of want it to be the other way around. Let's do a quick scan, a lot of focus and then a fair chunk of action at the end. Um, but my experience is if we if we allow people to everyone to do the scan and we get all the information available to us, the focus and the act can be fairly quick. And so the the real trick is if it's an hour meeting, for example, sometimes we have to have an hour meeting, half the time should be on um, scan, so 30 minutes on scan, 20 minutes on focus, 10 minutes on act. Um, And if it's a two-day, it's very similar. So, you know, a full day on scan, about three-quarters of the next day on focus, and then the last 90 minutes to half a day depending on act. And that's one of the great things about a model that works, isn't it? It goes across a number of contexts and circumstances, which is why it, it, it works. Once people, and you've worked with, with teams or, or uh, leaders to get more effective at their meetings, apart from the meeting quality going up and the meeting time going down, do you find that people then meet less because they're getting more efficient at that task? They start to learn new behaviours. And so what starts to happen is everyone's questioning, do I have to have the meeting? And so you start to see people doing things like, you know what, I'm just going to jump on the phone or I'm going to send a couple of instant messages or I'm going to pop my PowerPoint slide into a deck and send it to you and say, hey, can you have a quick read through and give me your opinion rather than let's have a meeting. Um, And I'm also starting to see real shifts in some of my clients around the, the absolute reduction of PowerPoint, if you're running a 25-minute meeting, you don't have time for the technology snafus that always happen around setting them up, getting the slides working, making sure the people at the other end of the phone can see them, blah, 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 blah. Um, and so I'm starting to see, you know what, it's 25 minutes, we don't really have time for a slide deck. These are the issues we're going to talk about. And so there's an efficiency that's starting to happen. There's a questioning that's happening around do we have to have the meeting and then there's a lightness. So one client in particular, they, they're, they're now doing as many meetings as they can for 25 minutes and it's almost like become challenge accepted. They're, they're gamifying it a little bit and it's not that they try to um, eliminate or cut people out because I've said to them, be super careful that you're not removing the niceties because I believe in 25 minutes you've still got time to say, hey, how are the kids, how was the weekend, how was your holiday? There's still plenty of time for that in 25 yes. minutes. Um, but so some of them are starting to get a bit playful around how many meetings a week can they make 25 and what would happen if we finished it at 20 minutes. And, you know, they're really starting to challenge what, why we allow the time of the meeting to determine the productivity in the meeting. And I love that because they're being lighthearted. It doesn't have to be serious, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. And the agenda of a shorter, more energetic meeting would flow into the quality of the outcome, I'm sure. Well, it is. If you're doing a two-day off-site and you've got a whole bunch of people travelling, you need a really detailed agenda, proper, formal agenda. If you're doing a 25-minute meeting, day-to-day stuff, I'm going to say you just need a focused agenda. What's the question we're asking? What's the question we want to have answered in this meeting? And that's all. And as long as I know that, then I come prepared to answer that question. It's also legitimate to get to the end of 25 minutes and say, I think we need to talk more on this and to go for an hour if necessary, right? So, um, yeah, I just think it's um, important to be thinking what's the purpose of the meeting and don't get too caught up in needing to have a blow-by-blow agenda. Now, you've decided to live in the beautiful central Victorian town of Heathcote and I'm wondering is that because you want to make meeting with you harder or because of the world-class Shiraz in the region? Uh, Definitely the latter. Um, and I'm very blessed to live next door to a winemaker. And so I've made, in fact, I've made my life very easy because he'll just ring up on a Saturday afternoon and say, hey, do you and Steve want to come drink some wine? It's like, yes, that's good. Is that a trick question? So with you running your own business and, and working reasonably remotely from where your client base is, how do you do that and remain productive? I'd be lying if I didn't say I didn't pop down to Melbourne from time to time. So I, what I do is um, I, I'm very, I manage my calendar really, I have to manage it really well. And so I, I'll come down to Melbourne and I'll say I'm going to do two days of meetings and I might stay overnight if I'm doing that. Um, and I'm, I have to lock them in. I have to send and be very, really well prepared for them. I have to get my people that I'm meeting to be prepared so they know what we're talking about. Um, I follow up the day before to make sure that you know, I double check and reconfirm. I've got an assistant who helps me do that as well. Um, and so I just, I think I have a consciousness about that. Obviously, the consciousness helps the activity and the planning. Absolutely. Do you have specific rules or rituals or routines that help you manage, you know, the day and the demands that are asked of you in your in your consulting practice? I do think very carefully about my energy Um, and I protect it as much as possible. So I do all sorts of things like I do all the right things. I make sure I get good sleep. Sleep is I I obsess about sleep and make sure I get a good night's sleep. Um, I drink plenty of water. I drink herbal teas, all those kinds of things because I know that I am my asset in the business and I have to maintain myself in that way. I've also figured out I'm I'm really into um, uh, chronotypes and circadian rhythms and so I'm very clear in the day when is the time of the day that I do my best work and so I protect that as much as possible as well. And for those who might not be as familiar with it, can you just give a bit more detail about that chronotype and what what that means and how it works? So your chronotype is is your body clock and um, some people uh, are self um, self-confessed early birds. They like to be up early in the morning and they do their best work in the morning. And some people would say, no, they're night owls. They do their best stuff in the evenings. And so the science would tell us, um, based on lots of science and research, that around 70 to 75% of us fall into the more morning type and about 25 to 30 fall into the evening type. And what this means is that for the bulk of us, um, the time between about 8am and 10am is when we're at our most mentally alert. Our bodies still like to wake up when the sun comes up and go to sleep when the sun goes down. And things like electric lighting, poor diet, 
technologies, et cetera, are messing with our body clocks a little bit. A typical morning person from about 8 to 10, maybe stretch up to 11, we're at our most mentally alert. And then the afternoon, we become more physically um, alert, if for want of a better word. And so in the morning, we're better to do our thinking stuff. And in the afternoon, we're better to do our routine stuff. Um, I think that the thing that any listener might want to think about, though, is it's processing email is probably the least productive thing you can do first thing in the morning. Um, I've no problem with you scanning it and just checking, is there any earth-shattering stuff in there? But for most of us, that's an absolute waste of our most valuable and productive time. And it's often Russian roulette with our day, isn't it? Because if there's something that we start doing, we just drop into this reactive workflow straight away and lose that really productive time that you're talking about. That's it. And and the thing is, is I think this is related to the urgency stuff as well. And so um, the, the frame that I like people to think about is, what's the work that's going to have the greatest impact on my day, week, month, year, whatever word you want to use, the stuff that serves me and serves so, and is impactful. And the second thing with filter that we run it through is what requires a lot of intensity, thinking. What, what am I going to have to really give my brain power to? And that's the stuff we should be, you know, protecting our most valuable time for. It's high-intensity work, so I've got to think about it, and it's high-impact work. It's going to be um, stuff that's going to have a great um, impact on my, my work life. We'll put your books down into the show notes because you've also written a book called The First Two Hours that, that starts to unpack and explain a little bit more about this in, in detail. And you've got sort of a really nice well, I was going to say model, but it's probably just a, a philosophy about how we should be spending, you know, an eight-hour day about the types of work that we should be doing. Can you maybe just run through that? I think people would find that really interesting. Yeah, it is um, it is based on an eight-hour day. And so probably a heap of listeners yes. are going, she's dreaming because, like, who does an eight-hour day? But it would be remiss of me to suggest in a book about productivity that you should be basing it on a 12-hour day. So, just to clear that up. There's a, a great quote by Jason Fried about the fact that we don't have to work 12-hour days. There's not 12 hours of work to do. It's just we're inefficient and so it takes us that long to get through the stuff that should really be an eight-hour day. So there's a bit of a, a chance for people to pick a fight with their workday there if they want to. In my book, I talk about an effect that says that people will use the amount of time that's given. And so if you say to someone you've got 12 hours to get something done, they'll use the whole 12 hours. If you tell them that you've got an hour to get something done, they'll get it done in an hour. And it's no different to when you've got visitors coming and and you say, you know, how long does it take you to clean your house on a weekend, a couple of hours, and then if visitors call and say, hey, we're going to drop in in 15 minutes, you can make that house look sharp in 15 minutes. And so if there's time taken, we'll use it. So I agree. So let's let's talk about eight-hour eight days. Um, and so the first two hours, I say, are your most important. You should protect that. I'm saying, you know, do it for your thinking work. If you've got to prepare for an important presentation, if you've got to read some important documents, if you've got to make some important decisions, it should be happening in, in there. And so I say that's when you serve yourself and your needs. The second two hours would be when you can serve others. So we're still a little bit mentally sharp. It's still morning-ish time. And so now we open up our, you know, this is open door time. We have meetings. We do one-on-ones. This is where we can help others with, because our brain is still a bit switched on so we can be of service to others needing our thinking. Um, The third two hours is typically after lunch. And so we do go into a bit of a slump, the after lunch slump. 
Um, and so that's the time when we want to do repetitive and routine tasks that don't need an awful lot of brain power, um, but still need to get done. And so this is where I say we process email. And by processing, I mean, of the emails that you get, about 10% of them need a considered response. The others are simply delete, delete, delete. Yep, yep, yep. Got it, got it, got it. You know, very quick responses. And after lunch is the time to do that because you don't need much brain power. And then in the fourth two hours of the day, we often come good. We get a bit of a second wind. And so this is the time where we um, wrap up some of the the things that have happened throughout the day that we need to finish up, but also start to prepare ourselves for the next day. So if we can make a bunch of decisions in the afternoon of the day that protects us um, and leaves our brain a bit more open for the next morning. And so decisions like, I mean, I don't go to bed without figuring out what I'm going to wear the next day. I also figure out what I'm going to eat the next day. If I'm driving somewhere different, I check the route before I go to bed. Um, And all of those things mean that when I get up the next morning, I'm starting my day free of the need to make silly decisions. Another tip for me that I always do is I just write myself a note. I've got these little cards that I, I just write a note and that sits at the the front of my desk and that is the first task for me to kick off the day so you know as soon as I sit down there's a there's a mental trigger there about getting into the most productive thing that I can do with that those early hours so that's another little trick to add to the mix for people mm, that's cool. Donna this podcast is called the messy middle because it's it's really there to celebrate that you know discomfort uncertainty and sometimes a little bit of fear are, are part of us doing our most meaningful work and so I'm wondering what messy middle have you worked through recently and what were the lessons or takeaways that you you got once you got to the end of it? Do you know, I've, I've just done a job uh, for, for two weeks up in um, Asia and a lot of people would think, well, you know, look at Donna slaying the world up in Asia, having a great time and, and spreading her word far and wide. Um, except that I did find it probably the most messy work I've done for a really long time. I found it uh, hard and messy and challenging, and it took me so far out of my comfort zone. It was just that I got back from that trip, and it's it. Ha- I haven't stopped thinking about the messiness of it. I haven't stopped thinking about what is what is it that I should have could could have done. Did I need to prevent the messiness? I'm sitting with the messiness and thinking, wow, this is a this this was such a different different situation for me, and so. I'd say that's the most recent one I've had. And and if you're asking right now what I've learned from it, I think um, it's around that it's okay for messiness. But um, and, and I'm pretty much okay with that generally, but I'm trying not too much to get into fix-it mode on, you know, what could I have done differently? How could I have prevented it? All that stuff. I'm, I'm trying to sit with this notion of, you know, it was messy and it was okay. Because messy doesn't necessarily mean bad. There's learning there or there's growth or there's opportunity and reflection and all those wonderful things that help us get clarity through the messiness sometimes. The human desire and craving for certainty um, when absolutely ambiguity might be okay and it can be as simple as me not understanding not only the culture of one of the countries that I was in but the culture of the organisation. So one plus one made seven Um, and the difference of how I was used to operating to how they were was just was profound. And so it wasn't that it was wrong. It's just that it was super messy. And, and, and my ability to cope with that ambiguity in the moment, I think is way more powerful 
that learning than trying to figure out how to fix it and prevent it in the future. And who do you turn to for your inspiration or collaboration, whether that's sort of offline or online um, or or people that you read and follow that help you stay calibrated to your most meaningful work? So I am a bit of a social media hound. So um, I browse LinkedIn. I um, I follow, oh, I follow people like Seth Godin, James Clear, uh, Matt Church, Australian fellow. Um and of course, I have my own mastermind group. And so there's a group, there's four of us that meet regularly. And sometimes we just meet and drink wine. And other times we meet and we talk, talk deep work issues. We're all consultants. We all have similar um, problems and similar opportunities and similar work and situations. And so uh, we have each other's back in a way that is you can't underestimate how important that is. And finally, just where can people find you, Donna? If people have listened and thought, wow, there's nuggets of wisdom there, there's things I can I can execute, put into practice, they want to find out more about you or, the, or books, where can they um, find you? The easiest place is donnamcgeorge.com. And I've got a, quite an unusual name. And so just Googling Donna McGeorge will pretty much find me across any of the social media platforms as well. I'm extremely active on LinkedIn. Um, and so I would love any of your people to, if they want to connect with me, if they just mention, heard you on the podcast and connect, because sometimes, you know, when, when you connect with perfect strangers, you're wondering where they've come from. So if any of your listeners are, are interested, please connect with me on LinkedIn, mention um, Andrew's podcast and so I know uh, where you found me. Great. Thank you. And I'll obviously put those contact details down in the show notes and some of the other books we mentioned, the Pomodoro Technique and and those other things. So thanks so much for your insights, Donna. I think, you know, us being productive and healthy and happy and effective in the work that we're trying to get done is is such a hurdle for many people sitting in the middle of organisations and trying to lead organisations. I really appreciate your uh, openness, authenticity and insights to help people along the way. Absolutely my pleasure. It was really great to have the chat. Just a couple of things for those of you who are listening for the first time before we wrap up. If you enjoyed this episode and think it would be good company for your drive home, commute on the train or mental fuel during that daily workout, please subscribe by clicking on your preferred podcasting platform or head to andrewhorsefield.com forward slash podcast and if you'd like to receive a monthly email from me with insider content videos white papers and recommended reading that's going to help you move your mental furniture about people and performance then sign up for more content that's been curated specifically for curious minds like yours at andrewhorsefield.com forward slash contact thanks for listening